0: Myself. Talented. Let's try that again. You ready? Let's pretend like this never happened. I learned a new word this week. The new word that I learned this week is spite house. And this is a real architectural term that um, I didn't even know was a thing, but it's a huge thing. You know, it's a real thing because it has its own Wikipedia entry, so that means it's real. And a spite house is, is kind of a growing phenomenon of people who build a house or a structure on a property to spite someone else, right? So if you're not sure what spite means, it's like, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face, like you do it out of hate towards someone else, you know, with me, right? So you understand what a spite house is. I wasn't prepared to define that for you, but I just got nervous that you might not know. But a spite house is a, instead of cutting off your nose to spite your face, you build a property on or you build a house on a property to spite your neighbor. You with me? All right. So there's this whole long list of spite houses across the country, and these houses and, and offices and building structures were built by people to spite their neighbors or to spite someone they didn't like. And so I found these, and I was got stuck in a wormhole of spite houses, and it was fascinating for way too long. But I I wanted to share with you three of my very favorite spite houses, and you can go look these up later. Um, I I will say this, because I know that I have some friends from this area of the country, and I don't mean to offend them. There's a a weirdly uh, strong correlation between most of the locations of the spite houses being in the northeast part of the country. So I don't know if we're more angry in New England or what, but a lot of them were up there, so... Sorry. So here's my first favorite Spite House. This is number three on my list. This is called the Skinny House. It's a Spite House in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, And you'll notice that it's very skinny by comparison to the other houses on either side of it. It turns out that after the Civil War, two brothers were returning home. The first brother inherited the property that was belonging to both brothers and built the house there on the right When the second brother made his way home from the Civil War, he got there and realized that the brother had already built on most of the property and told his younger brother, sorry, I didn't think you were going to make it home. And so to spite his brother, he built the skinny house. It's roughly 10 feet wide. It's hardly livable, but It stood for a long time because of the legend of the skinny house because it's one of the very first spite houses and it's in Boston, Massachusetts. Here's number two on my list of favorite spite houses. This one's a little harder to see, but it's about eight feet wide also. It's on a corner in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's a very small piece of property. The owner of that piece of property came upon the the property It was handed down, he inherited it, and he went to the owner of the the giant house next to him and said, hey, I have this little corner lot, it's not going to do me any good. He said, make me a reasonable offer and I'll sell it to you so you can own all the way to the corner. Well, whoever owned the corner, whoever owned the rest of that lot at the time made him such an embarrassingly small offer that the person who owned the corner lot decided I'll never let you have it and built the, the, the spite house there so that the person couldn't own the lot. And it stands today as an office, and people work and live in that office building right there, and it's known as the Cambridge Spite House. So people have spent time, money, and resources just to get back at people and are mad at them. It's really, it's fascinating. And here's why it's fascinating, because this is the best one. This is an older picture but this is known as the main spite house, main the state spite house. And this one was built by a husband who was dis- doing building this house to spite his wife. You see in their divorce, she said you have all you can have all the money, you can have everything else. She said, "I just want you to build me our house again." She said, "I want the house, but I I want you to build me a new version of it." But she made one small mistake and that she didn't specify where he was to build the house. And so he found a marshland out in the middle of Maine, far away from electricity, running water, any kind of civilization or any of her friends, and plopped down this house out in the middle of nowhere where she could find nothing or be nothing, and built her an exact replica of the house. And to this day, this house still stands in the middle of nowhere because it was the first spy house in Maine. And so people do all kinds of things out of spite, and it's really like this really odd thing. And you, if you dig into a lot of architecture in Spite House, you'll find all these stories and all these things. And I started thinking about the dumb things people do out of spite. And I realized that I occasionally have been known to do things out of spite. Um, like, for example, at a stoplight, I have been known to, if you honk as soon as the light changes green... Like I get that if I'm not paying total attention and it takes me a second and you honk, I'm fine with that. But if the light changes green and you honk, we're going to go really slow through that intersection. Also, and I don't, I'm actually hesitant to admit this because most people don't know this about me. If you're rude to me in the grocery store, like if your cart bumps mine or if you don't smile at my kids and call them cute, like whatever it takes to make me upset, um, if you're not looking... I'll take things out of your cart and put them back on the shelf. I didn't realize no one else did this. I just thought everyone thought that was a funny joke. But but apparently most of y'all have like left the grocery store missing things and it's probably my fault. It's like, like I don't know why there's flour on my hands and no flour in your cart. I don't know where it went. But like, Okay, so here's what I want, because I don't want to be the only one. So I want you to take about 10 seconds, lean over to the person next to you and tell them something you've done out of spite, whether it's going slow through an intersection or walking out of church because you don't like the preacher, whatever it was, real quick, lean over to the person next to you and tell them something you did out of spite. All right, somebody shout one out to me real quick. it's like, I'm not telling you. This never works when I ask people to shout them out. So Anybody got a good one? Anybody? Anybody? Tell, pretend like the other person told you this so you could tell on them. Driving too slow with somebody behind you. Oh yeah, don't tell me. I'll go real slow. We'll take those curves real carefully. Anybody else? Anybody else? <laughs> What's funny is I actually think that's what Liz did to Jeff. So, <laughs> anyway, so, so we've all done those things out of spite, like silly things, right? But then, then there comes this moment when little petty things aren't what we joke about anymore. Right? You know, we talk silly about people who bump into our carts in the grocery store or, or you know, driving too slow on the road. But then comes the time when we start talking about the people who have hurt us. And we move past the the jokes and the silly, and we start talking about the real stuff. And we start talking about the honest hurts in our lives, and it's not much fun anymore. You see, because like for a lot of people, there's a story that goes, well, when I was 16 they said. Or when I was 21, he promised. Or when I was 14, they said. And and the story goes, and the story goes, and, and even if you hear the story, it might seem small to you, but Here they are 15, 20, 30 years later, and they can remember the day, the time. They can remember what they were wearing. They can remember what it smelled like. Even if it was just words that the person said, even if it was something they did, there are these moments for each of us that we have locked away in our heart that we're never letting go. And I say we because I have a memory when it comes to things like, an, like this, like an elephant, and I can tell you the time of day and the day and the words and the sentence structure that I'll never forget of those things. I can't remember to get groceries on the way home, but I remember these things. Because when someone hurts you, it consumes you. And then what happens is you start to say, I'm never going to let this go. And karma is going to get you. You see, what's really interesting to me is I feel like 10, 15 years ago, no one ever used the word karma. And, but all of a all of sudden, it seems like to me, everyone is very interested by the term karma. And we use it as this thing where if you do something bad to me, I'm going to hope for karma to do something bad to you. And people use it and they throw it around and they talk about justice and payback and all of these things. But what happens time and time again is we're only ever interested in other people getting paid back. And we're always wanting to make sure that the people who have wronged us, the people who have hurt us, the people who have, who have harmed us are the ones who see the karma. And then there comes this moment when we think, you'll get what you deserve you hurt me you wronged me and let me tell you like I want to be honest with you that I know there are people and I know there are stories in this room of people who have been seriously damaged by other people and that there are stories that other people in this room couldn't bear to hear because the pain and the scars are real and so I don't want you to think that we are, we're going to be flipping about this. I don't want you to think that this is like a, we're calling every hurt trivial. I, I want you to know that even if other people might think your pain is trivial, that your pain is your pain and it's real. And so I don't want you to think for a moment that we, we think that. But what I do want you to know is that I want you to know that there isn't a person in this room who isn't carrying some sort of scar on their heart from someone who hurt them. Here's the other thing that I want you to know. And I want, you to, um, I want you to open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 18 or get out your phone or whatever it is that you follow along with on your Bible. And as you turn there, I want to tell you that there's two kinds of people. And the first kind of people we're talking about are the kind of people who don't want to be forgiven. And in the first half of Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about the kind of person who doesn't want to be forgiven. Because Jesus talks about the kind of person who hurts you. And he said, there are people, and there may be very well people in your church who hurt you. And he said, if they don't listen to you, take someone else with you. And he says, if someone else doesn't listen, then take the whole church with you. And he says, if they don't respond, then it's time to, to be done with them. And so there are, will come times in your life when, when you've done everything you can do to confront someone about the hurt in your life and the way they've hurt you, the best thing you can do from that point on is to say, I, I have nothing to do with you. But even at that point, Jesus doesn't say, tie up the grudge and hold on to it forever. At that point, he says, walk away and release the hurt. But then what happens is is the discussion takes an interesting turn, right? So he was talking about the kind of people who don't want to be forgiven, the kind of people who won't apologize, the kind of people who haven't asked. He's saying, confront, confront, confront. If they haven't asked, if they haven't approached you, then do what you can and then walk away. But then, he says, but then the, the conversation shifts. And the conversation always manages to shift in the Bible when Jesus is talking. Almost every time it shifts, it's Peter's fault. Like, Peter's this guy in the Bible who always says what everyone else is thinking. And so they're talking about forgiving people and they're talking about people who will apologize. And all of a sudden, Peter comes up with this question. And he says in verse 21, he says, Peter comes to Jesus and asks, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And, I, and, I, and you need to know that this sounds like a weird question to us because like seven seems like an odd choice. But there it is, right? The number seven, and it, and it seems like an important thing. But when Peter's asking this, you have to understand where Peter's coming from. You see, Peter is coming from a a school of thought where the Pharisees, the ones who taught Peter how to think, would have built fences around fences around rules. And everything that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, taught had rules about rules about rules. And it gets really complicated, and there's not a whole lot of time to explain to you what they were trying to say, but, but they always wanted to make sure that they never even came close to breaking the rules that God set forth. And so what they taught and what most of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, believed was that if someone wronged you, that up to three, maybe four, if it was a more generous Pharisee, maybe four times you should forgive that person. And so when Peter comes to Jesus and he says, okay, so how many times should I forgive my brother? He kind of puffs his chest out because he's saying, what if I forgive him seven times? He thinks he's a big dog, right? Like, he thinks, oh, look at me. If I forgive him seven times, that's four more than most people will. That's a big deal. And he, he's asking Jesus this question because he knows that three times isn't enough. If you've had a friend, if you've had a relative, if you've had a brother or a sister, if you've been married for more than a week, you understand that, set, that three times isn't very many, And so when Peter says seven, he's feeling pretty high and mighty. But look at what happens. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. If you read, depending on which version of the Bible you read, it translates differently. Some of them say 70 times seven. Some of them say 77 times. It's not really about whether it's 77 or 490 The issue here is that Jesus is using a hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make the point that says it's not about how many times. Jesus says, if your brother hurts you and he comes back and asks you to forgive him, forgive him. He says, if somebody hurts you and they come back and want to make it right, make it right. And this is an important thing about this number seven here is that Jesus is teaching Peter an important lesson that he's teaching you and me. He's saying, listen, 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 listen. You're about to be forgiven a lifetime of wrongs. You're about to be forgiven of everything you've ever done, Peter. He's saying, do what was done for you. Do what was done for you. You see, forgive is a really heavy word. To release the pain that someone caused you long ago, to release the the, the hurt that they gave, to release the scars that they put on you is not easy. I know because as I stand here before you, the words that they said, the things that they did, the, 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 whatever it is, are ringing around in my own head of, of the pain that I carry. And I can only imagine for some of you that the names and the, and the dates and the places are ringing around in yours too. This isn't an easy choice to make. But Jesus is reminding me, and I pray he's reminding you, that those are small In comparison to the long list of things that Ben has done, those are small in comparison to the ways that Ben has wronged the Creator. And so what happens so often is that I continue to hold these wrongs and these, these things that people have done to me inside, but every time that I think through it and every time that I, I, I approach God and I pray and I say, God, forgive me for the way that I've, I've talked to my wife, forgive me for, for the way that I've been selfish, forgive me for the lies and the, forgive me for this, forgive me for that. But then I say, but don't, don't forget about so-and-so, let justice be done. God, take all their money away. But God, please forgive me for wanting more money. But uh, by the way, if uh, you know, like, whatever, right? It happens. I I have to tell you, um, if you've been around me very long, you know one of my one of my great secrets is not really that secret, and that I'm a pretty picky eater. Um, I prefer to call it specific and simple. Um, I really just eat, like, pizza, tacos, hot dogs, hamburgers, like, that's it, like, I'm cool. I don't have to eat anything other than that. Um, and one of the things that happens inevitably when my parents come to town is that my wife and my mom will start both making fun of how picky of an eater I am, like, oh, I can't believe you have to cook for him, I can't believe you put up with it all those years, you know, blah, 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 he's the worst, uh, it's okay, I have the microphone and they don't, so, haha. <laughs> um, but one of the weird picky things about me that it's just like a more recent thing, I don't really like milk. I don't like to drink it. Um, our dairy farming friends aren't here today, so I can tell you all that I don't think milk's good. I don't like to eat cereal. I don't like to drink milk. I think it's gross, okay? So here's what's funny about this milk in particular that has sealed the fact that I'll never drink milk again. This looks like a normal, normal jug of milk to you, doesn't it? I'll tell you, you don't have to come up here and verify it, that it doesn't expire until November 2nd. But because of this jug of milk, I will never, ever, ever drink milk again. Here's what happened. Wednesday, I was here in the office working. Justin and I were working hard preparing for the fall festival today at 4 o'clock that you're all going to bring all your friends to. And um, Whitney called me, and she said, Hey, I'm at the library with the boys. I totally forgot that click list was coming, or That our click list was going to be ready between 10 and 11 at Kroger. And Whitney is such a rule follower. She was like, I'm worried they'll be mad if we're not there by 11. Like, what are they going to do, not let us buy groceries there anymore? Like, like, sorry, you guys are banned from Kroger. You didn't pick up your click list in time. you got to go to Walmart. Actually, that would be a really bad fate. Okay, so anyways, um, and so, uh, so I, I, being the heroic husband that I always am, I drove to Kroger, and I, and I went to the click list, and I did all the grocery shopping. It's the best way to grocery shop. And the lady, the lady put all the groceries in my trunk, and as I and I went home and I and I unloaded all of the groceries I put all of the perishables in the fridge and all of the unperishables in the freezer and most of the groceries that I knew where they went I put them away some of them I still don't know where they go and I got back to here and we did some more work and then Thursday went by Friday we went back to Justin and I went back to the store we got some things for for this fall festival this afternoon at four o'clock that you're all going to bring your friends to, and we loaded the trunk back up with stuff, and Friday afternoon, we're unloading the trunk with things for the fall festival, and I said, Justin, why did you buy a gallon of milk? (laughs) One of you is good at math, and he goes, I didn't, and I was like, why is there a gallon of milk in my trunk? And I quickly realized, Wednesday, I had gone to ClickList and had a gallon of milk in my trunk that had been leaking out of, my, out of the gallon and into my trunk for the last three days. So it looks like a normal gallon of milk. And by all intents and purposes, you could almost sell this to a person. But if you were to open this, if you were to take a sip, you'd be pretty mad at me. But this is what happens to you and to me all the time. Is that we say, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And we say, God has, God has cleansed me. God has erased all of my sins, right? We tell you all the time, if you follow Jesus, if you believe and you're baptized, Jesus will erase all of your sins. And we say, look, look, everything on the surface is cool. Everything's fine. Everything's copacetic. But the reality is, is if you open up the actuality of our heart and you were to look inside, what you would find is a bunch of anger and bitterness that no one wants to know about. Because the truth is, is that you don't know what to do when you find a gallon of milk that's been sitting in your trunk for two days, and you sit it outside for two more days and think, I guess that's going to be a sermon illustration. (laughs) And then you start to smell it while you're talking and wonder, is this the worst mistake I've ever made on stage? But the reality of this is the reality of my life in that it looks okay, and that it looks all right, but what's inside is a hot mess because I won't let the bitterness, I won't let the anger, I won't let it go because I want forgiven because I want my sins washed away but I want them to get what they deserve and Jesus hears that in Peter Jesus sees that in Peter, and so he starts to tell Peter a story. And I tell you this all the time, that a parable, a better word for a parable is the Hebrew, or Greek word mashal. And the Greek word mashal means a difficult-to-understand saying. And the difficult-to-understand part of this story isn't that we don't know what it means. It's that it's difficult because it's hard to live. So check this out, and it continues in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 18. He, and Jesus tells this story. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 10,000 bags of gold would be roughly equivalent to about mm, somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 million. If this is 2017, he owes more money than a normal person could pay in 10 lifetimes. A lot of money. And since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And so you're hearing this story and you're understanding that he owes more money than he can ever pay back and it ends his family legacy. Because if he gets sold into slavery and his children get sold into slavery, there's no coming out of this in the first century. They will be slaves until the day that there are no more slaves. He will be slaves, his grandkids will be slaves, his great-grandkids will be slaves. All because he somehow racked up this debt that he would never, ever, ever pay back. And there comes this moment when he's in front of the king and the king says, You owe me money. And the servant realizes that the debt is called and he's going, I have not a hope, not a prayer. And the servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. He begs and he pleads. And I want you to hear those words, be patient with me. Be patient with me. But here's the most important part of this story: is that as Jesus is telling this story, there's no pause in the next line. Jesus doesn't say the very next day. He doesn't say a few weeks later. He doesn't say the next year. The guy walks out of the room, and the story continues. The guy walks out of the room, and when but then the servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. We're talking in this day and age probably about five bucks, maybe ten. It would have been, uh, maybe we could go higher, maybe 40 or 50, probably a day's pay for these guys. So we're talking the difference between ten lifetimes of wages and less than a day's wage. But he walks out of the room after being being forgiven of ten lifetimes, 400 million dollars of debt versus 50 bucks. And he sees the guy who owes him $50 and begins to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Pay back what you owe me. Pay back what you owe me. And listen to this. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. I will pay it back. Not 30 seconds before those same words had come out of his mouth. Not 30 seconds before he had said, Be patient with me, I will pay it back. Be patient with me, I will pay it back. And the king was, and the king forgave him. But now he walks out and he sees the guy who owes him and he says, You! And he wraps his hands around his neck and he says, Pay me what you owe me. And I almost wonder in my mind, as he's he's holding the guy, and as his hands are around his neck, as he says, pay me what you owe me, if there's not a moment where he doesn't hear the words, be patient with me, where he doesn't remember that he just said those very words, where there's not a moment where he doesn't recall, I just asked that same thing. If there is, though, he shoves it down He shoves it down because he's only interested in one thing. He's only interested in getting what's his. He's only interested in getting what he came for. You see, he got what he asked for. He got his money, he got his debt forgiven. And now he's going to see this guy get what's his. You see, this is what happens to you and me too often because for most of us, when we're not doing what's right, our number one priority is ourselves. And our number one priority is taking care of us. And even, even sometimes when it, when it looks like we're doing it all right, when it looks like everything's cool on a surface level, what happens is we're only focused on us. So if you really were to open the bottle, if you really were to crack open our heart, all you would see is that we're focused on ourselves. But Jesus has called us to a life much different than that, a life focused on other people. But what happens too often is that our main concern is grace for us and justice for everyone else. Our main concern is justice for us and, or, oh man, I got that wrong. That's awkward. Our main concern is grace for us, justice for you. I get forgiven, I get it washed away, I get everything taken care of, but you. You better pay me what you owe me. You better make it right. You better give me mine. Because we're too focused on ourselves to worry about anyone else. And time and time again, we find ourselves locked in only on what matters for me and not for anyone else. But what Jesus came for and what Jesus tells the story of is grace for all of us. Grace for everyone who asks. Grace for everyone who comes before him and says, I am sorry, please forgive me. What Jesus tells the story of is grace for us all of us grace for all of the people who follow Jesus but I told you this is a difficult story and I'll be honest we haven't even gotten to the hard part yet because the hard part comes right here see then the master called the servant in because he saw what he had done and he said I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back everything he owed. So he throws him in jail and says, Now you get what you deserve. Now you get what you think that guy should have gotten. Now you get it too. The forgiveness that you asked for, the forgiveness you wanted, the hope that you had, he said, it's gone. Now you get what you deserve. Jesus is telling the story and he says it's either grace for everyone who asks or grace for no one who asks. But here's the scariest part. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. See, here's the warning. The warning from Jesus is this. If you can't find it in your heart, if you can't find it inside of yourself to open up your heart and say, hey, you you wronged me, you hurt me, but I have to forgive you. If you can't find it within you to say, I have to let this go, I have to release this pain, I have to be be done with this, I have to be through with holding on to this grudge, if you can't let that go, Jesus says, you will find yourself thrown in jail. Because here's the reality of, of that servant. If he's thrown in jail to be tortured until he can pay the debt back, how long does it take a man in jail to pay a ten ten lifetimes worth of wages back while he's in jail? Forever, right? Forever. So that man then spends eternity in the place of torment, in the place that we call hell, because he refused to forgive the man who had wronged him. And so here's the question that we have to ask ourselves today. Who do we need to forgive today? Who do we need to forgive today? Because the reason that we do what we do, the reason that we get together and we talk about Jesus, the reason we care about the words Jesus has to say is because Jesus forgave us. Is because Jesus let us go. You see, we believe that Jesus came to earth as a perfect human being. And even though we were wrong, even though from the time we were a little kid and started disobeying our parents, even though there came a time when we didn't listen, even though there came a time when we weren't good enough, even though there came a time when we didn't measure up, even though all of the, I mean, you can't even imagine a day where you didn't do something wrong, think something wrong, act on something wrong. Time after time, they've added up, they've gone together, they've they've worked together. All of these things have happened repeatedly over and over and over again. The list is a mile long. But Jesus still came to forgive our list. And the reality of our list is that it's much longer than the list of wrongs that we hold against someone else. And so here's what I want us to do. Here in just a moment, the men are going to pass the bread and they're going to pass the cup. And as they do I, I want you to to take just one, one one quick moment and remind yourself that Jesus has forgiven you of so much. Who can you forgive today? Who can you forgive of what they've hurt you? Who can you forgive of how they've wronged you? Remind yourself that you've been forgiven and God is asking you to forgive that person.